I'm Jorge Salazar with the Texas Advanced Computing Center. The coronavirus infects its host cell by first binding one of its spike proteins and then fusing its helical core to the host cell. The virus makes its own molecular version of the mythical Jacob's Ladder that reaches for the heavens. It builds a far-reaching ladder-like apparatus from core helical amino acids that latch on to its host cell, leading to infection. Scientists don't yet fully understand the details of how the coronavirus binds and fuses. Numan Esguin is an instructor at the Microbiome Center of Texas Children's Hospital and also at the Baylor College of Medicine. He's developed a model simulating coronavirus binding and fusing on Longhorn, the graphics processing unit subsystem of the Frontera supercomputer at the Texas Advanced Computing Center. Dr. Esguin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. What I was hoping to do was to, to highlight some of the research being done by scientists who have been awarded time on tax systems to do COVID-19 research. I believe that the system you're using, you're just using Longhorn at, at this time, right? Well, actually, I used also um, earlier Lone Star. On Lone Star, I was uh, using the same technique, de-simulation, molecular dynamic simulations, um, at that time on um, antibiotics, on the dynamics of the antibiotic beta-electromases um, especially. And even before I was using, again, MD simulation to understand how insulin binds to its receptor. Believe it or not, till this day, we still don't have a good idea exactly where the insulin binds to its receptor. We have so many structures, but they have their limitations because they are usually membrane-bound, and you cannot crystallize or degenerate structures uh, when it's a membrane-bound. On the other hand, if you cut the helix that uh, connects it to the membrane, then suddenly the V-shape of the insulin receptor actually it kicks in and then and they, they move apart. So what you have on the cell surface, on the membrane, is not the same as you have in the cryo-M structures, for example. That's why this was one of the motivation why I was uh, doing the insulin-insulin receptor simulations. Um, that's interesting. I, I imagine that this research might go into um, a new and improved insulin or something like that? Or? Yeah, first of all, to understand, first of all, where it really binds and what's the dynamic of it. Because if you know where it binds, we have good idea from many, many, many experiments in the wet lab. There's a very good idea where it binds, but the exact position is still not known. And if you don't know the exact position, you cannot interfere with, for, with, for example, or design better insulins. Right? This is the, the idea basically behind that. And especially, as you know, in Texas and in the U.S., obesity, I am also gaining very much. <laughs> we all gain actually a lot of um, weight, and then this problematic of, uh, of diabetes is growing more important day by day. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah they call it um, the core in 10. That's the, uh, the 10 pounds you put on. <laughs> For being quarantined. And the, um, yeah, I imagine that the work with, um, that you're doing with insulin kind of ties into the work that you're doing with COVID-19 um, membrane bound protein um, that, that changes uh, conformation to activate, I guess. In the case of insulin, if you, and this is my hunch, if, if it is bound to the membrane, it's not allowing to, the, to, to, it's a dimer. It's not allowing you to really, each monomer to move so far away from each other and form really this V-shape that we see in the cryo structures, for example. 
But if it is bound on the membrane, it's not allowing this. And if you don't allow this here, you actually have a higher binding affinity to the insulin. This is already shown experimentally. That's why I was saying, yes, we have an idea where it binds, but the binding affinity is lower than what we see um, uh, happening if it is not cleaved, if it's not free in solution. So that's what, it's absolutely critical to have the right orientation of the monomers to each other because they affect each other and they affect also the biology. They affect how well, for example, in the insulin case, it binds to each other. Well, the, bind, the insulin binds to the receptor. So that's, that was the idea. Actually, I have also ideas how we can experimentally test it, but we need to show it first also, hopefully, in, in, in silico, and then we can go from there. This is, this is the idea. <laughs> and in case you have COVID-19, it's, again, it's a trimer this time, not uh, like an insulin receptor dimer. It's a trimer. The spike protein is a trimer. It's, again, bound to the capsid of the virus. And, again, it needs to change its conformation so that the host receptor, in this case, the ACE2, the human ACE2, can bind to it. If, if it doesn't change on top of the spike protein, if it doesn't change its conformation, it is not uh, possible for the ACE2 to bind to it. So this is basically one of my first questions that I would like to answer with this um, project that I am currently running. Can I see one and how the RBD domain, this is the receptor binding domain that binds to the ACE2, how does it move from its closed conformation, what you call down conformation or closed conformation, into the up conformations that is capable of binding the RBD? So this is, if it doesn't do this movement, the whole thing is, is going to stop. So the, whole, the, the virus cannot enter the cell if it is not, this is one of the very first steps that had, need to happen. We know it happens, but we don't know how it happens, and we don't know what the weak spots are. Can we interfere with, it, uh, with this movement? This is basically what I'm trying to answer, what I'm trying to, to understand. First of all, how does it move? We know roughly how it moves because of the KIM structures that has been already solved, but we don't know how far it, it uh, moves, how fast it moves, and what starts it. Does it need a trigger? Or does it happen spontaneously? This, this kind of questions I'm trying to answer. So I, I have a trimer in the down conformation, put this in very large water box, and let it run and see whether it moves spontaneously. So it's not doing this. So up to, up to now, what I'm, um, what I'm seeing from the desmonation, it's not doing this. It might have several reasons why, it might, uh, why it's not doing it. Maybe, first of all, it might be just needing more longer time. I might be not simulating long enough. That's the first thing. But it might be something else also. And I'm, I'm uh, devising and actually already started other MD simulations to test these too. So to see uh, whether other conditions are needed actually for it to move from the down confirmation to the up confirmation. And therefore, basically, uh, create the conditions on the virus side to be able to bind on the host receptor and therefore enter the, the cell. So this is uh, this is the thing that the first question that I'm asking. What's an easy way <laughs> to describe the research that you're conducting on the Longhorn system at TAC? 
Well, the easiest way to say it is basically running MD simulations. This is classical Newtonian mechanics, where we trace um, atomistically on an atomistic level the path of every single atom in the system that we are looking at. This is basically it. We are looking at the dynamics of it. So by tracing uh, the position and velocity of each atom in the system, we're basically tracing how it moves with time. And this system that you're studying, this is the SARS-CoV-2 virus? Yeah, I'm looking at the spike protein, which is on the surface on the particle, on the virus particle. And specifically, I'm looking uh, to see if I can see the uh, movement on the spike protein side uh, from the down conformation into the up conformation of its receptor binding domain. Because this is absolutely necessary for the virus to uh, be able to enter the whole cell. What are the uh, the biggest computational challenges that you face in modeling these uh, structural changes of the spike protein on the SARS-CoV-2 virus? The biggest ch- challenge is still uh, having enough resources, basically, to run long enough MD simulations to see what we want to see. And in this sense, actually, long and attack is actually a very good resource for us. I imagine that's because the system is very large. Um, uh, how big are we talking about? Well, the system uh, with the uh, spike trimer, it's, it's a trimer, it's not a monomer, the spike itself. It's composed of three monomers. Together with the water around it, actually, is half a million of um, atoms, which uh, the velocity and the positions need to be tracked, basically. And hopefully, not only a couple um, nanoseconds. Uh, my goal is to go for one microsecond. It sounds a l- not much. But in terms of atomistic movement, molecular movement, this is actually a quite large um, time. And it takes also, even on, on long run, uh, a couple of weeks to complete this one microsecond emulation. Could you speak a little bit more about Longhorn? This is a graphical processing uh, unit, a uh, GPU cluster attack. Why is Longhorn uh, the right tool to do these molecular dynamic simulations for you? Uh, this is actually a very good question, and I really appreciate Tech putting together Longhorn because for MD simulation, you need, uh, if we can parallelize the, the computation a lot. And therefore, we could run it, of course, on many CPUs. You need basically to chop off your problem and then submit it to different processing units. If you run this only on CPUs, you will have to uh, submit this on different CPUs. And therefore, you have a lot of communication overhead. What Tech did with Longhorn, what I like very much is they put actually GPUs, um, uh, graphic processing units, which have massive parallel computing uh, cores parallel to each other. You send the information to the GPU and, and every core on the GPU can actually access the same memory and therefore actually be much more efficient in the calculations. And the other thing that I like also still more, even more in, on Longhorn is that we have on one node multiple GPUs, allowing us actually to do even more computation parallel without the need to go to another node, which again costs a lot of time and communication overhead. I'm very happy actually. So even the very large system with half a million atoms, it progresses with uh, around 20 nanoseconds per day, which is 20 million femtoseconds, because I'm, uh, I'm calculating every femtosecond 
the position and the velocity of each atom. So this is mind-boggling, actually, how much computation is going on. But it's only possible because it's running on GPUs, and additionally, they are running on the same node. So the communication overhead between nodes is gone, is eliminated. So that's why it's very fast, actually. Even with this fast resources, to go for one microsecond, as I said, it's going to take me about 50 days. So imagine if you would have less efficient uh, machines to work with, then it will take so long you will not be able to, to finish it in, in a human lifetime. So we came actually very far, and it, I'm very grateful to have access to this great resource. Could you give us a little bit of a timeline? Like, when might you expect to see some results um, from the simulations that you're running? The first set of the MD, MD simulation is almost done. A couple of days, and uh, it will be done for the one microseconds. What I see from the intermediary analysis is that the expected movement, as I said, remember I was talking about the spike um, with its um, receptor binding domain on top of it. For the virus to be able to bind to its receptor, it needs to go to the up confirmation. Up to now, I was not seeing this. And this is the question now. Is it not happening spontaneously or what's going on? So therefore, I'm letting this run to the end and I'm setting up actually parallel to it other conditions to check this too. And hopefully I will see the movement and then we can go from there and then analyze what triggers the movement. I mean, what regions of the protein are first moving or enabling the movement? So once we know this, then we can think about ways of preventing this. And then if you can prevent even the, the up movement of the RBD on the spike, then everything else stops. The wires cannot enter the cell if this doesn't happen. This is absolutely crucial. I think what you've been describing to us could be um, described as um, basic research. I'm just trying to get knowledge about something. How does this kind of basic research uh, translate down to non-scientists? What benefits might non-scientists see from this work? Well, for the non-scientist, this is basically trying to understand, first of all, how the protein works, how the uh, virus work. Once we have this understanding, then we can devise strategies to prevent it from infecting and getting us sick. Basically, what I'm doing is this basic science foundation to get as much knowledge as possible so that we have many tools and ways to interfere with the um, actions of this virus. This is my final question. Thanks very much. Was there, before I ask my, my final wrapping up question, was there anything that I didn't ask you that I should have asked you? Well, I mean, I'm running a second question uh, on tech, which is now, let's say the virus particle did bind to its receptor. What happens next? So the next question is, we know already from other experiments, for example, that uh, this spike protein needs actually to be cleaved. It needs to be cut so that the actual entry machinery of the virus can be exposed. So the receptor binding is the very first step. But once this happens, we know that the spike is cleaved by a host enzyme, by host protein, into two parts. So it needs to bind to the host. And then together with the cleavage of the spike protein, the first part, the upper part of the spike is cleaved and then it actually shed away. 
Once this happens, then the real machinery that actually attaches, makes the contact to the host membrane and then fuses with it, is exposed. And this needs also to change its conformation actually very dramatically. If you look at um, animations, how this helix bundle, helix core changes conformation, you will be amazed. I mean, from its initial conformation, when it uh, uh, starts to fuse with the host cell, it extends its length by the factor of three or four. So it's a very large conformational change there too. And this, and this simulation, what I'm doing, what I'm using is actually, again, very useful and very appropriate tool to study these kind of structural changes. That's why I'm setting a second set of new simulation exactly to test this. So in the second set, it's not the whole spike protein. It's only the core half of the spike protein exposed to the solvent and then seeing how it changes conformation. And this, again, bears the potential to, once we know how this happens, to interfere again with it. Even if we can stop this uh, conformational changes, it, we, again, we will win the race against the virus again. Because if it cannot change this conformation or if it cannot do it efficiently, then it will not fuse with the host membrane and then therefore enter the cell. So those are two different things that need to happen for the wires to, to enter the cell. First, bind to it, then shed or cleave away the, the first part of the spike protein. And then once this is done, the core of the spike protein needs to change also its conformation very dramatically. And this conformational changes I'm studying too. So I do, those two uh, aspects are, are that I'm studying right now. What's the most important thing that you want the public to know about uh, the research you're doing on the Longhorn supercomputer? Well, just that they know um, the investment that the public is doing and putting in these kind of uh, facilities and, and this kind of research is very well investment. Even though sometimes we don't see the direct benefit out of it, but generating the knowledge of how, for example, in this case, in this particular case, to the virus is actually functioning, even though you don't see it directly in the in an application. Generating this knowledge is basically the basis for any other intervention that can be later on devised and then applied. You've been listening to Numan Esguin of Texas Children's Hospital and also at the Baylor College of Medicine. For the Texas Advanced Computing Center, I'm Jorge Salazar.